Well, it's been um, three weeks, um, but we are back in the book of Acts. We are in a, a series there that will take us probably through the spring. And uh, if you want to turn to the book of Acts to chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. And by the way, if you missed those first couple messages, we, they were interrupted there by a, a great message from Ryan Miller uh, two weeks ago and Caleb Weaver um, last week. But if you missed any of those messages, uh, good news, the, the podcast is, they're obviously on YouTube, but the podcast is back online after uh, hitting some hiccups during the beginning of the pandemic, which kind of threw everything off. So you can catch those up on your, your favorite podcast service. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 41 of chapter 2, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a good chance you left 2020 with one of two lessons imprinted on your mind. I bet one of them in particular. Uh, But one of the two, and at least subconsciously, I think this happened. You either discovered that community was not important to you, something you could do without, or at least not as necessary as you might have thought, or you discovered that community was essential to your health and your well-being, and I'm betting it was that one. That's what we get for having spent a significant amount of time forced to be apart from one another by a pandemic. And while few of us avoided community entirely, most of us were forced to make some serious changes to the way that we enjoyed community and the amount of time we enjoyed community. And for most of us, that's been a very big deal. We are drawn to community. We find our identity in community. It's why Facebook is loaded with groups for every possible identity we can imagine from the African-American Cello History Collective to Hoi San Ting Tong Dong Donald Trump which apparently is a Thai fan group of Donald Trump. We, we think if people are like us, we'll have acceptance and fraternity and perhaps meaning. And we should expect that because God created us for community. That's part of the story of the Bible. God created us to be in community with him and with one another. He made us like him. He made us in his image, and he dwelt with us. He made us male and female, and he commanded us to multiply and to cultivate harmonious society across the earth. That's what we were designed for. You can can read that in the first two chapters of the Bible. Of course, that's not what we see in this world, is it? We've turned our backs on God, and, and as a result, we've lost community with God, and we fundamentally damage the community that we have with other human beings. 
And yet still we seek it. Earlier in the book of Acts, we saw that Jesus was about to create a new people. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, that becomes a reality. Jesus is restoring the created purpose for us human beings. And that means that the Christian faith is centered around a new community. The Christian faith is centered around a new community. There is a lot in this passage. And this, we're going to break it down six ways. This new community has commencement. It has commitments. It has compellingness. It has commonality. It has communion. And it has a crop. A passage begins in, in verse 41. And I know that's a little bit weird because if you're, if you're looking at the Bible that we primarily use here and, and many other Bibles, verse 41 is the end of a paragraph. But, but, you know, the Bible was written before there was a thing like paragraph markers, before there was printing presses. And we put those in there to help us to understand the text. But sometimes there's differences of opinion where we should draw that paragraph line. And I think there's good reasons to think that 41... It's a little more closely related to 42 than it is to 40. Um, But it is a transition verse of sorts, a kind of a segue between what came before and what came after. And so because of that, it's probably a good idea to remind ourselves what we talked about three weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the power that Jesus had promised come upon his followers in the form of the Holy Spirit on what was likely, we said, May 23rd, AD 33, May 23rd, AD 33, the day of Pentecost. And empowered by the Spirit, Jesus' disciples testified to the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem that this Jesus had died on a cross to pay for the rebellion of human beings against God. That Jesus had risen from the dead. That Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his Spirit. And that now it was imperative for people to believe this message and to turn from their sins so that they could be rescued from what their rebellion deserved. When people heard the message proclaimed from a follower named Peter in particular, we read that the people were so convicted of the truth of Peter's words that they they turned and they asked him, what do we do? And he encouraged them to repent of their sins and be baptized. And that leads us to where we start this morning in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So from the first day of the Christian church, there was a specific commencement to one's participation in this new community, baptism. We see this pattern throughout the Bible's New Testament. When people come to believe in the message about Jesus, what do they do? They get baptized. Why? Why is baptism this sort of entrance rite, this commencement to the Christian faith? Baptism baptism was this idea of being submerged momentarily in water, And it was a symbol in the ancient world of death. It was a symbol of death to an old way of life. Death to old priorities. Death to old habits. Death to old values. Death to lies. Death to old morals. 
a death to one's entire way of life so that one could embrace a new way of living, a Jesus-centered way of living. Another word for that is repentance, which is turning away from one's old ways to God's new ways for you. And so baptism and repentance and faith are always very closely linked in the Bible. It's also, by the way, why we don't baptize babies or even children in this church. We, we still love our Christian friends who disagree with us on that, but we'd say that an important part of Christian baptism is faith and the commitment to this new way of life. That's the pattern we see in the Bible. And if a person doesn't have that faith and that commitment to a new way of life, then it's not a Christian baptism. We just think it's a small child getting wet, not a baptism. But for nearly 2,000 years, people have commenced their journey in the new Christian community by being baptized into that community as a sign of the Christian faith and of Christian repentance. So how about you? Do you, do, do you desire to turn away from dead works and follow the living Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you trust that his death on the cross pays the penalty for your sins and gives you new life? If so, then why not make the commitment to publicly follow Jesus Christ by being baptized into his new community? Well, on that day, 3,000 people were added to the Christian community, a community that seems to have been about 120 people before that point. So that's a pretty sizable leap. What would that new community be like? Well, the next few verses tell us what that new community is like and, and give us a pattern for what this new community should be like. So in, in verse 42, we see four commitments. We saw the commencement is baptism. That's how we enter the new community. And once we're in the new community, the new community members have four commitments that are shared. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so let me suggest that these commitments should remain characteristics of Christ's church to this day. First, the new Christian community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles, we've talked about this the last few weeks, were Jesus' 12 specially chosen witnesses of his ministry and his resurrection. They were essentially ambassadors. They were authorized to speak in his name. Immediately after the events of chapter 2, all 12 of those apostles were alive and teaching the people. Today, we don't have 12 apostles, but we do have their teaching. That's why they taught, to ensure that the message about Jesus was faithfully passed on from Christian to Christian, from generation to generation. And they and their close followers wrote down their teachings in the 27 books of the New Testament. So how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching today? Well, primarily we do that by reading the Bible, by preaching the Bible. By teaching the Bible. Now, it's one thing to do those things as individuals. And as Christians, 
we certainly ought to do that. The first Christians, though, couldn't do that very easily, could they? There were no printing presses, and there was only 12 apostles. There's 3,120 disciples. So it's a little difficult for every one of those people to get one-on-one mentorship. But as Jesus said, everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. So for us who can buy a Bible at Dollar General for $1 or get one free from nearly any church or can download an app on our devices and read the Bible in hundreds of languages, thousands of translations, we who can pull up sermons on YouTube or our favorite podcast app, we have no excuse. But we notice that these Christians on May 23rd, 8033, were doing these things together, not just as individuals. Primarily, they were doing it together because, again, they didn't have a copy of the apostles' teaching on their living room bookshelf. And so when we gather together as a community, As a church, we do these things together. We look at the Bible. We read the Bible to each other. We listen to it. We hear it. We preach it. We teach it. We want to be devoted to the words of God. We want to be saturated with the knowledge of Jesus and his apostles, his his spokespeople. And we want to do it together. Christians are people who are shaped and formed together by God's word. Second, we read that this group was was devoted to the fellowship. This word fellowship is a word we've, we've spoken about a few times before, but it does not mean hanging out and having a good time. That's not what that's not what fellowship is. It means they had a share in each other. They were partners together with one another. They shared a common interest with one another. We might think as an analogy about a sports team. Although the players on the Browns have 53 personalities with 53 sets of interests and 53 different ways of talking and 53 different family backgrounds and 53 different life histories, they set aside, hopefully, they set aside those differences for their shared interest in winning a Super Bowl or at least beating the Texans. In the same way, in the church, we are called to fellowship. We, we set aside our differences and our oddities and our quirks and our histories. We are rich and poor. We are young and old. We are black and white. We are highly educated and lightly educated. We are conservative and liberal. We are all the things that are supposed to divide us according to the world. But we're together. Why? Because we share this in common. We were lost and now we're found. We are sinners who found forgiveness at the foot of the cross. We were wandering sheep who have been brought into the flock, the one flock of God. And we have more passion for this shepherd, Jesus Christ, than we have for anything else in this world. And so we are drawn to each other. 
Jesus told his followers, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That wasn't a mushy, gushy love. This was Christian love. The kind of love that sacrifices one's personal interests, one's personal preferences for the sake of someone else's good. Jesus said that he would have a community of people who lived to sacrifice their own priorities for one another. That's true fellowship. It's not the cup of coffee over at Rising Star. Jesus said it was an identifying feature of his people that they gave of themselves for one another. And Luke, in, in Acts chapter 2, says that's exactly what transpired. You know, this, this past week, a group of us spanning over 40 years in age, a group from this church, four different ethnicities, male and female, married and single, rich and not as rich, came together to, to support one of our own. And it was a crazy, strange mix of people that the, the world would say doesn't exist or shouldn't exist. And, and there it was, in the name of Jesus, sacrificing their time, and their money, and their comfort for one of their own. And it was a small but potent picture of the fellowship that they were devoted to, that we're devoted to. That's the kind of community that we are being cultivated into by the Spirit here at Gateway. It's a call for every Christian we're all called to participate in this because we cannot do it on our own. That's what Luke means when he says they were devoted to the fellowship. Third, we, we, we see they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And I'm not convinced that this refers to the Lord's Supper. I used to think that that's probably what was in mind. There might be a hint of it there because it later becomes a metaphor for the Lord's Supper in, in Christian tradition. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think most likely Luke is telling us that the people of this community opened up their homes to one another, invited each other in, and ate with them. And that's a big deal. That might not sound like a big deal, but let me tell you, that's a big deal. In the first century, sharing a meal with a person was not a sign of politeness or being a nice person. Instead, it had major ramifications for how you were perceived in the wider community. It was considered a very intimate form of relationship so that you could be defined by who you dined with. And that's why it was so scandalous that Jesus was often seen eating with tax collectors and sinners, as his critics called them. They were considered the undesirable people of their culture, almost the untouchables. By Jesus dining with those individuals, he was endowing them with dignity. He was endowing them with honor. But in the eyes of Jesus' critics, Jesus was ruining his own reputation by eating with those people. So the big deal here isn't so much who you're willing to eat with, 
but who you're willing to be identified with. Still, even in 21st century America, inviting someone into your home for dinner does come with some cultural baggage, doesn't it? Because we tend to invite the people who are like us. We see it as a form of entertainment. We entertain guests, right? And if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you're a member of this church, I just encourage you for a second, look around. Who have you invited into your home? And do your choices reflect the diversity of this community? Why or why not? Why hasn't he been to your home? Why hasn't she shared a meal with you? Could it be that it's because you don't identify with that person? But if you share the same riches in Christ, why would that be? Do you see, though, that the, the bigger point is not so much about eating together as being willing to identify with one another? On a basic level, that means that you can't be a Christian for very long without identifying with other Christians. And on a deeper level, it means you want other Christians to be identified with you. And that's really, really tough in the age of Twitter, isn't it? When someone out there in the media is calling themselves a Christian and does something or says something so stupid... Something that the people in your social circle think is ridiculous or shameful or scandalous. And the tendency is to distance yourself from that Christian. I'm not that kind of Christian. She doesn't represent us. And look, those kind of statements can be true and they can be useful. There are people out there with big names in the media that I'm convinced are using the name of the Lord in vain. That's a Ten Commandment issue, right? They're using the name of Jesus without their heart being there. But we need to be careful We need to be careful because Jesus intentionally associated with and identified himself with the weakest, the least desirable, the most disliked people in society. Think about it this way. When you have that impulse in your heart, you are distancing yourself potentially from a person you'll spend eternity with in order to gain the approval of people you'll spend a few hours total with in this life. And that seems a little misguided, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, we identify with fellow Christians not because we share the same politics, not because we share the same experiences, not because we share the same skin tone, but because we share the same Savior. Finally, this 
new community was devoted to the prayers. Some, some translations just say they were devoted to prayer, but it's more accurate to say they were devoted to the prayers, and probably what Luke means is that they were praying the standard Jewish prayers of the time together. After all, the, the first church was a group of entirely Jewish believers in Jesus. Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The prayers and religious devotion that were born out of the Old Testament scriptures are ours. But in either case, the, the point is that they spent time praying together the way Jewish people had often been doing for centuries. And, and still today, when we come together, we pray together. Christians are to pray together. Not just as individuals in our quiet times, but as a community. And that's why we spend a good amount of time praying together when we gather on Sundays. We believe in a God who is real, who hears us, who is actively listening to us, who acts in response to our prayers. And, and we understand that if you don't believe that, you'll likely be bored during our prayers. That's okay. You think that we're just speaking to the air. That's fine. We're not. That's okay if you think that, because we believe something different. We believe we're talking to the living God who made the universe and who rules it by his word. And so we give him our praise, we give him our adoration, we confess our sins to him, we thank him for what he has done, and we ask him for what he promises to do. And we even set aside special evenings to pray together with more volume. And, and I am really excited to share with you about our upcoming prayer service in October, because we're going to do some special things. But... So just mark that date on your calendar. I hope you make it a priority. But these, these were the four commitments of this new community, commitments that should mark our community here at Gateway as well. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, devotion to the fellowship, devotion to the breaking of bread, and a devotion to the prayers. They're not the only commitments of a Christian church, but they are four very important commitments. Well, this new community also had a compellingness to it. And Luke describes that two ways. He, he mentions two sets of circumstances that radiated from their community in first century Jerusalem. First, he says that all came on every soul. And that's not on every soul in their community. He didn't mean every one of the 3,000 people that had gathered together to become the church. He means every soul in Jerusalem. The people took notice that, that something interesting was happening with this group of Jesus followers. Not everyone believed that message. They didn't all become followers of that message, but they took note. Most likely, all doesn't mean each and every single individual in Jerusalem, which would have been 180, 190, 200,000 people. Although that's possible, it's probably Luke only meant to imply that every sort of person, from, from high to low, up and down, the significant majority of persons were impressed by what was going on. They knew something strange was happening. And awe came upon them. And how could they not? 3,000 people were excited about something. The disciples had been speaking in different languages. And the disciples are living out radical commitments to each other. But notice the awe is not directed at the community. The Greek word there is fear, phobos. And that's a word that usually refers to fear that's directed upward. They're not afraid of the community. They're in reverential awe of God. And so this new community caused people to pay attention, to 
God. And the leaders of this new community, the apostles, also had paying, people paying special attention to God because of the many wonders and signs that were being done through them. And wonders and signs could be a lot of different things, but we usually call them miracles. And most of the miracles done in the New Testament fit into one of two categories. There's healings and exorcisms. But there's a few other types of miracles that were recorded as well. And all of those miracles, every single one that you see recorded in the New Testament is done by Jesus. However, some of them are done through his 12 apostles. And on the reports that we have in the book of Acts, through a few other individuals who were closely connected to the apostles. But there's still always the work of Jesus. It's Jesus' miracles. It's Jesus' wonders and signs that are being done through his people. Remember, this is a book about all that Jesus continued to do after he ascended to heaven. These miracles were attestations that the good news about Jesus was true. The miracles authenticated the messengers. And as a result, they made the Christian way of life compelling. And some may ask, like, well, do, do miracles still happen today? And the answer is yes. If we don't see them, let me suggest three reasons why we don't see miracles. First, Christianity isn't new in most places in the world. So it doesn't need the same authentication. It doesn't need the same attestation as it did in the first century. Um, but there are some very compelling stories of miracles on the mission field among unreached people groups where the gospel has never been made known. And so I think that we happen to live in a very Christianized society where miracles may be less common. But I think there's a couple other reasons too. Second, we might not see miracles as often because the Bible is a short summary. And the Bible tends to highlight the things that are a big deal, right? A miracle is a big deal. And so we might get the impression that miracles were happening every few seconds when in reality they were probably a little bit more scattered than that. It's just, you know, Peter finding a good tree to relieve himself on is, is not news to write in the Bible. But Peter healing a man is kind of a big deal. You know, it wasn't something that happened every day. So, sorry, that was a crass analogy. But um, you get the idea. So, sometimes we, we tend to forget that the Bible focuses on the big deal things and not the mundane things. But third, and this one's really important, I think we don't see miracles because we're not looking for them. We are so naturalistic in our assumptions that we too easily write off obvious miracles as just a coincidence or chance. Our hearts are too hard to see what God is actually doing. But I do believe God still testifies to the truth of his gospel with miracles if we have eyes to see. And both in our lives, our community, and in the miraculous, there is a compellingness to the Christian community. This new community had a fourth thing. It had commonality. Luke writes, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this passage has been misread a couple different ways. On one hand, I've heard people say that the first Christians were socialists, 
and that's what we should do too. But a careful reading does not support that conclusion. That's reading 19th century economic theories into a first century historical writing, which is always a dumb way to read a text. Secondly, I have heard people overreact to that theory and suggest that what the disciples did here was stupid because a few years later they were all broke and poor. So it's proof that socialism doesn't work. That's like doubling down on the stupid interpretation theory. Not only does the text not make that connection, not only does it, but it, but it also ignores what we know about history. That a huge number of the, the pop, a huge percentage of the population that was living in Jerusalem in first century Palestine was poor to begin with. It was kind of an honorable thing and a wonderful thing. Jews from all over the world, they wanted to die and be buried in Jerusalem. So when they got too old to work, they left their homes, they left their families, they came to Jerusalem and relied on the generosity of the synagogues in order to survive during their golden years. They were without much of a safety net and they were poor because they wanted to die in Jerusalem. So they were poor to begin with. Secondly, there was a famine that took place in the years A.D. 45 to 48. And when a famine comes upon people, who does it hurt the most? It hurts the people who are already poor the most. So this wasn't something stupid the disciples did. Instead, what we have here is exactly what it sounds like. The Christian community's fellowship overflowed into commonality. They didn't think that their possessions, their goods, their foods, their properties, their stuff was nearly as important as ensuring everyone was taken care of. So if someone had a need, that stuff, which can't be taken to heaven anyway, could be sold to take care of that need. There their type of community and the type of community we're called to is more concerned with people than with possessions. And so again, we hear echoes of Jesus' words that his followers would be marked by a love for one another. I think we have two problems in the American church. The first problem, we have a lot of problems, but two problems on this specific issue the first is that we don't often ask enough, what needs do you have? Sometimes it's because we just don't care. Often it's because we don't want to interfere. But whatever the case, how do we know what needs a person has unless we ask them? And not wants, but needs. Sometimes it's hard for us to tell those two things apart. But a good place to start is food, clothing, shelter, transportation. Does this person have access to healthy food and an ability to prepare it? Does that person have proper clothing for the season and for life's demands? Does a person have a safe and secure roof over their head? And does a person have reliable transportation to get to and from work and other essential appointments? Sometimes in our culture, Sometimes in our culture, that might not mean selling our stuff to provide the need. It might, it might mean something harder. It might mean something more personal. It might mean in these complex economic times, helping a person put together a budget that allows them to thrive. And that takes a lot of time and patience and, frankly, love. 
but that's what we're called to. Second problem that we often have in the American church that we don't often ask, can you help me? We're all broken. We are all plagued by the wickedness and weakness of this world, and we all need help from time to time. We are weak, and yet we are too prideful to ask for help, or we have too much desire for control to ask for help, or we have too much fear to simply ask, would you please help? But how can someone know your needs if you don't tell them? The early Christians had commonality. And we need that too if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. And we need to be intentional about letting people know our needs and about asking other people what their needs are if we're going to live this out. Fifth, this community had communion. And I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper here, which is something we often call communion. I mean, quite literally, they communed. I'll point to three things in this passage. In verse 44, Luke writes, all who believed were together, meaning they were in the same place. In verse 46, we read that day by day they attended the temple together. Probably they were going to the temple because it was a public place that could hold 3,000 plus people. Day by day. I do not normally resort to shame. Those of you who have been here for years know I do not resort to shame very often. But allow me a little, little bit of shaming here. This, this, was, this was more than a physical gathering, although that was important. The text says they, they, they came together. But that particular word for together tends to emphasize togetherness of mind. Okay? They came together single-mindedly. They were unified, not just in body, but in mind. They were together to seek Jesus. And we also have in verse 46 that when they weren't in the temple together, each day they were going back to each other's homes. We mentioned that earlier. Luke is putting more emphasis on it here, but the point is they couldn't get enough of each other. So I'm, just allow me a little moment to call you Christians out on this one. If you're not a Christian, you can ignore this. I think that too many of us think that our time together is a good, regular habit, but we don't believe that it's essential. We're quite content to worship with the Christian community if there's nothing else going on, but if there's a special event, we're out. If we have a guest in town, we're out. If we're on vacation, we're out. Forget meeting day by day. Most of us can't do it even week to week very well. Be honest. How many of you who consider yourself Christians commune with the saints of God to worship more than 40 times a year? More than 45 times a year. I'm not talking about if you're sick. I'm not talking about if you're quarantining. I'm not talking about if, if, if there's an emergency. The last time I wasn't here on a Sunday, I was in Virginia. And I worshiped with the saints at Cave Spring Baptist Church. 
When I was out in California, I visited a small church on the former campus of Golden Gate Seminary. In Birmingham, we praised, with the, praised Jesus with the people there. And you know the crazy thing? When we were in Birmingham, some members of that church who didn't know us grabbed us, grabbed some other visitors who were there, took us to their house, prepared a hot lunch. In fact, they had prepared to invite strangers to their house and had started a hot lunch that morning. And we stayed for hours unplanned on vacation just talking, the children playing, enjoying the fellowship of the saints. In Chicago, we worshiped with a neighborhood church on Addison. In Washington, it was Capitol Hill Baptist Church. They, there, they, they returned in the evening, every Sunday evening for a prayer service. And they sing, and it's so good. In Costa Rica, when my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary, I did my best to sing and learn at Primera Iglesia Bautista de Liberia. Outside of the pandemic, I cannot recall a Sunday I didn't gather with Christ's people to hear the word, to read the word, to sing the word, to pray the word. I really don't say this to shame you. I, I say that jokingly. But I, I, I do say it to ask you, ask yourself if you're committed to the communion of the saints, the way that Christ has called us to be. The author of Hebrews wrote, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you're honest, have you neglected to meet with the saints because this new community that Jesus is building is to be marked by regular communion well, that brings me to the last thing we see in this passage the last point and it's the only one that's not a com word not a com word crop this new community had a crop it had a harvest. It bore fruit. It grew. It had a crop. Luke writes, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was growing. More and more people were believing the good news about Jesus, turning from their old ways, and being rescued by Jesus from the punishment they deserved for those old ways that we all have walked in. Now, the Bible does not promise that when the church looks like this new community, like we have here in this passage, that enormous numerical growth will follow. There's an old Bible study saying that you can't get an ought from an is. In other words, when the Bible says that things were a certain way, that doesn't necessarily mean they ought to be a certain way. You can't turn a descriptive passage into a prescriptive passage. And there are many ways, we know this, there are many ways to grow an organization, including a church, based on mistakes, based on deception, based on dumb luck. So growth doesn't prove that God is behind it. But I do think that there is a connection between the two. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. But when God's people are living out the new community they are called to be, growth 
tends to happen. Because when you tell the message about Jesus, and you couple that telling the message about Jesus with a compelling community that puts into action the message that you preach, it is a powerful one-two punch. So I don't know what Jesus has for the future of our church. But may we at Gateway be known by our commitments, known by our compellingness, our commonality, and our communion. And may God grant us in his providence a crop. Let's pray. God, we do pray for that. We pray for a crop. We pray for harvest, Father. If our lips have been silent, God, help us to speak. Give us boldness. If our love has been cold, then warm it up. Sink us deep into the truths of your good news that our love might be stoked and it might burn bright for Jesus. And then our love for you and our love for one another, your gospel might go out. And with Peter, we might be begging that people would be saved from this crooked generation. We pray, Father, for those who, who are not believers in our midst this morning or who, who might be hearing us online and, and, and they're wondering, what kind of community is this? What is this strange thing? God, would you, by your spirit, break them to their need for the grace of Jesus Christ and grant them entrance into eternal life and the community you are building that goes with it. And show us the ways in which we have not loved each other well, which we have not been good with our commitments, when we have not reflected the kind of community that you desired to create. And let's redouble our efforts to image Jesus here at Gateway. It's in his name we pray. Amen.